0: All right. It's good to be with you all. It is mildly terrifying when Mark starts an announcement. Andrew Barber, that could just go any direction. <laughs> Andrew Barber will be solo leading worship for the next two months. <laughs> Things that were running through my head in that pregnant pause. If you could, turn to Matthew four twenty three. So it is true, we are doing the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you want to hear a funny story, the reason I picked that is because I just spent two years going through Acts and was like, I want to do something that we can do quickly. <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, well, we could knock out the Beatitudes in a sermon. At the beginning of the week, we could do the first four. Today, we are doing two. So, see how this goes. We are, as we get to the Sermon on the Mount, I very intentionally went here, we spent a long time in Acts, looking at the beginning of the early church, and I just wanted to get straight to the words of Christ and what is his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the height of his rhetorical powers laid out for us. There are disciples from all over who have gathered to hear him preach, and he speaks to us this morning as well. So I'm going to need a little bit bit of a longer runway to set up the text this morning because I don't just want to set up the Beatitudes. I want to set up the Sermon on the Mount in general, and one thing I was thinking about is as we get into the words of Jesus himself, I think there are a few different approaches that we could have as an audience as we go in, and I would like to, I would like to look at a few of those and quickly suggest the one that I think is the most helpful one. So you can view, as you listen to Jesus speak, you can view his words as something meant to help your kind of self-improvement project. Uh, So, Jesus is just there to say something kind of inspirational to me to help me become my best self. Uh, I I would say that if you follow that approach, the minute following Christ becomes difficult, you're going to be tempted to abandon him. I suspect a lot of students who are Christians in high school but uh, walk away from Christ in college, uh, their experience is, well, Jesus basically works in high school. But once I'm fully free, I don't want to have to submit to his words anymore. So that first approach, Jesus is just here to kind of prop up my personal awesomeness project. I don't think that's right. Uh, Secondly, maybe you view Christ's words as just another standard or a burden to uphold. Like, make sure you work out 30 to 45 minutes a day and don't lust in your heart. Don't be hateful and also buy local produce. You know, it just kind of, it factors into that list uh, we're always running through our heads of those kinds of things. And I'll say that if, if you approach Christ's words in that way, then you'll either, one, totally give up because, you know, who needs a longer list? Two, you'll accomplish it, but you'll be bitter about it. I'm doing all this for Jesus, but I, I feel burdened. Or three, you'll pretend you're accomplishing it and hide your sins from people around you. Thirdly, you can think that, and I think a lot of us are probably prone to this one, that Jesus came just to act and not to speak. So, in other words, the teaching is window dressing for his main action on the cross. You'll probably ignore Jesus' words and say things like, well, he died for my sins, he said lots of stuff, but mostly that just shows how sinful I am. Let's get through that to the, the real deal. Fourthly, you could view Christ's words as just as helpful, but just for people in the church. It's kind of a live and let live approach. You secretly think Jesus' words are kind of offensive and probably outdated, so maybe you're ashamed of them and unwilling to speak to people about them outside of these walls. But here's the winning approach that I want to suggest, and I want to be our guiding star as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. The Gospels say that Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. And it's not separated out. It's not like, anytime Jesus is talking about dying and being resurrected, that's good news. But anytime he talks about other stuff, that's just hard stuff we have to do or ignore or work around. The whole thing is good news. The whole thing is good news. The whole thing is an invitation to life and life abundantly in the Father. So in this approach, we assume that what Jesus has for us today is worth paying attention, and it's good news. So for today's passage, Jesus preaches and offers us, in the words of one commentator, a new vision for the good life. So let's dive in. Let's hear it. Let's look at Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, Father, your word is good. It is true. We need you this morning. You have called us to this place. We are here at your will and your providence that we may receive the good news of the kingdom from you. Help us to set aside all the things that get in the way from us hearing you and help us to hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so many I'm an English teacher, and many of you uh, were probably forced to read Lord of the Flies uh, at some point in your schooling by William Golding. It's a pretty heavy book. Uh, In my early days of teaching, I taught it in 8th grade until I got reports of nightmares by students and had to move on from that. Uh, But the story is simple. The story is that there's this group of young boys who are marooned on an island at the start of World War III. It is actually World War III. It's kind of buried in the background. But things quickly go south on the island. It's utopic. Uh, The setting, they have everything they need. But it doesn't take long before the boys begin to to, uh, exert will and cruelty and power over each other. But they have this one pesky thing that won't let them fully give over to the dark desires they have, which is they have a conscience. And they have teachings that they've heard their whole lives. Until one student, uh, one young, they are from like the same school, one of the young boys, Jack, realizes that if he paints his face. He can be somebody else. He can hide his true self. He can shut off his conscience. And he teaches some of the other boys how to do this. And one thing leads to another, and it doesn't take long before the boys are torturing and killing each other and living lives of fear and cruelty. Now, it's a dark book, obviously, and one that William Golding had to defend for most of his life, what it was about. He got a lot of heated questions about why he wrote it. And his primary argument was that The advance of technology in a society was not necessarily an advance of morality. In other words, he had just come out of World War II and he was like, look, the fact that we have cars doesn't make us better people because the problem is inside of ourselves. And at the end of Lord of the Flies, a single 12-year-old boy is being hunted by the rest of the boys. Their spears are in their hands, paint on their faces. They set the island on fire to burn him out. And unbeknownst to them, this fire that they set, I'm spoiling it, but it's been around a while, uh, signals a ship. And in the final scene, and there's more to it, so I'm not giving everything away, but the boys come crashing onto the beach and they trip at the feet of this naval officer who's standing in front of them, the first adult they've seen in a long time. And immediately, they're children again. And they stand in front of this adult man and there's a long pause and one of the boys begins to cry, and then the rest of them all begin to cry. They suddenly see who they are and what they've become, and they weep because the adult walked in the room and everything changed. There's something like that happening with Jesus in the Sermon on the the Mount. We've been on the island for a long time. We know how it works. The world is hard and unmerciful. R.W. Glenn argues that if we were to write our own sermon, say the rules of the island, it would probably sound a little bit like this. Blessed are the self-sufficient and self-reliant and independent. Blessed are those who have fun, enjoyable, pain-free and Instagrammable lives. (laughs) Blessed are those who've made a name for themselves. Blessed are those who have the best resumes. Blessed are those who reward hard work and oppose laziness and judge people only by their merits. Blessed are those who are like a little religious but not too much. Blessed are those who mind their own business, and blessed are those whom everyone likes. For some of us, that list has actually given us a pretty sweet life. We know how to play the game, and it's worked out pretty well for us. For other of us, it's a tyrannical, it has a tyrannical hold on us. We've never been able to live up to it. And for a lot of us, we've had to pretend the whole way. But this morning, we crash on the beach, spears in our hands, masks on our paint on our faces, and we hear the good news of the kingdom of God. Our sermon was wrong, and thank God. Many of you have been Christians for a long time, but you still feel that temptation to paint up, grab the spear, and go to war. Some of you aren't Christians or haven't considered that there might be another way to this kind of sermon that we just gave. It can be tempting to do what everyone else is doing. The survival impulse is very strong. But the Sermon on the Mount is good news, And it's good news, because the way of the island is death, and it loses. And we know that the way of island is death. We're all exhausted from trying to live it out. A few years ago, I was waiting for a bus for a fairly long time. It was pretty late. People were getting really angry. And when the bus pulled up, uh, the driver made sure that a gentleman in a wheelchair, who was in the very back, got the first seat. And the things that people said who had been waiting in line for a long time were devastatingly terrible. That impulse loses. The way of the island loses. That impulse in my heart loses. And it loses, and here's the good news, it loses not because I have to conquer it, but because Jesus did it on my behalf. And we don't have to wait to live differently Because of what Christ has done for us, we can put down the spear today. We can follow him. If we love and follow him, that begins to change us. And the Beatitudes are laying out of what happens as we encounter this Jesus who lives in a totally different way, who envisions a totally different kingdom. It's the new vision for a good life. And as we go through this list, it may be tempting to separate each one out and go, okay, all right. Work on this, work on that. But the better thing to say is this. Do not seek the Beatitudes. Seek Jesus. And these things will be added to you as well. Okay, so I want to look at just the first two. The first one is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to picture the crowd gathered there that day to hear Jesus. It says that it's disciples. We probably, it's his core group, but it's also probably a wide range of people who are interested in following Jesus and hearing him. I imagine there were some who were kind of messianic revivalists, like, yeah, let's go. I'm fired up, and Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans. Let's do this. There are some who are probably interested but suspicious. Sounds a little like Old Testament stuff, but what's going on here? A lot of people, he seems to be angering a lot of people. There's some who are spiritually serious, and some who drifted towards probably a kind of defeated hopelessness, but wondering, I'll give this guy a chance and see what's there for me. And I want to say that the integrity with which Jesus treated each person must have been overwhelming. As we follow Jesus, he does not have any respect for the hierarchy we set up. Each person for him is a potential worshiper of God made in the image of his father, and he gives them absolute attention. Whether it's the woman at the well or the Pharisee Nicodemus at night, Jesus is unbelievably receptive to the spiritually interested, no matter who you are. We can subconsciously begin thinking this way. The grace of God is only kind of tangentially available to me. I'm not the person who gets the full attention of God. I don't know enough. I don't matter enough. I'm not virtuous enough. I don't have an amazing testimony. I don't feel the spirit like other people do. I've done so much I regret. I'm perennially anxious, envious. And Jesus makes full eye contact with me and says, blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that you have his full attention? This morning, sitting in the pew, You have the full attention of Jesus, who sits on the right hand of God the Father. He came for you in particular to speak to you and speaks to you today through this word. So when he says this, what does he mean? Blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's got a wide range. Uh, There's lots of debate around the word blessed. In fact, if you go look at the big stack, has there ever been a bigger fight about one word? I don't know. It's wide-ranging, but I think we can get close. Approved, content, happy. One person says it's more like lucky in that it's not something you've earned, you know? Lucky is the person who is poor in spirit. I think you can begin to get a sense of what that word means. It's a type of joy connected with, like, divine affirmation. Which is why the first one that comes out of the gate was probably surprising to the audience. Blessed is... And what they probably expect is, you know, the person who tithes the most or the person who shows up church every time and the doors are open and the person who, and there's a long list of things that you might plug in for blessed is thee, and Jesus says, poor in spirit. And not just blessed, they possess the kingdom of heaven. Not what the crowd was expecting. Later on, Jesus goes on to say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the religious elite, You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the audience hearing that would have been like, well, I'm done. Forget it. (laughs) How is that good news? And what Jesus is trying to say, and what he's saying with this on court and spirit, is he's saying, you think that the Pharisees, the religious elite, are the closest to God, and you're all on the outside looking in? but I'm telling you they're in the most dangerous place because they don't think they need me. My favorite parable from Jesus explains this. In Luke 18, he tells a simple parable. I come back to it a lot. It goes like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And Jesus tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. At the time, tax collectors were taking money from people of Jerusalem, and they viewed them as a type of traitor. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." You can almost hear the rules of the island in the prayer, right? God, thank you I'm not like other people. And it's it's a little cartoonish, it's a little comedic, but man, we do this all the time, don't we? Whew, thank, I'm not, thank God I'm not like that person. And it works in both sides, right? Thank God that I saved my money well and prepared my kids for college and showed up to, to work on time. Or like the other side, thank God that I'm not a poser and I'm totally authentic and uh, I mean what I say. Thank you that I'm not a hypocrite like the polite people around me. And over to the side, we have the tax collectors just saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And listen, we're in church, and many of you have heard enough stories to know who the good guy is in Jesus' stories. But search your heart. You meet the Pharisee and the tax collector. Would you rather be the Pharisee? Is there a part of you when you run into the Pharisee who goes, yeah, that's who I kind of want to be. That's who my life is built around, being that person who can say, thank God that I'm not like other people. The poor in spirit are those who, in seeking Jesus, recognize that their only hope is in Christ. Isaiah 55 puts it this way, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Or as that great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, puts it, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. So Jesus starts this new vision for the good life with this. Blessed are those who come with nothing, know they need everything, and can only get it as a gift. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I had a friend in college who, uh, a good friend, who fed head over heels with A very impressive young woman who was way out of his league, we all thought. Like, dude, you have no chance. Uh, We're rooting for you, I guess, but, you know, reality check constantly. But apparently he waged an intelligent campaign, and suddenly they were engaged. Well, at some point during this engagement, he went to our pastor and said, "I, I, I love her. She seems so much more knowledgeable about Christianity than me. I'm really intimidated what can I? How can I contribute to my family's spiritual life? And my pastor said, look, man, you know, scriptural knowledge is good. You should work on that. Prayer is essential. You need to do that. But for now, I want to tell you this. Repent and repent quickly. When you get in a fight and go to separate rooms, move through anger and bitterness and frustration and get to vulnerability. Give real apologies. Apologize to your children when you fail them. Make your family's atmosphere one of repentance. My pastor was saying essentially, blessed be the poor in spirit. My friend was coming saying, how can I become like the Pharisee so I can say, thank God, I'm not like other people. And what he was saying was, blessed are the poor in spirit. Be someone who knows you have nothing, you need everything, and it's been given as a gift. Live as if that's true, because it is true. I hope you can begin to see how this is an incredibly freeing thing. And Jesus is going to play this out. It's incredibly freeing to know you have nothing. You don't have to defend yourself anymore. There is nothing the world can threaten you with. You had nothing in the first place, and Jesus has given you everything, and the everything is untouchable. This is what our Father offers us. If I can add one other thing, being poor in spirit is not code for like negative narcissism. Okay? Uh, there is a way you can go, okay, i got to be poor in spirit. I'm terrible, everything about me is awful, and you're just constantly, well, guess what? That's just the flip of I'm awesome and everything about me is awesome. You're doing the same thing. I've heard people say, you know, with all this self-denial stuff, Christianity is really just a form of self-hatred, but Christ is not asking you to focus more on yourself. He does not want you to go develop a grinding loathing for yourself. How does Jesus feel about you? How does Jesus feel about you? He's come to die for the people in the crowd. He comes to die for you and me. True poverty of spirit pushes us towards Christ. He's not giving a new rule. He's offering us a gift. Christ loves and cares for you. He's trustworthy with your successes and your failures. The poor in spirit are blessed Because the poor in spirit look to Christ. Okay, this rolls pretty easily into the next one. So the next one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you can see the contradiction. It's like saying, blessed are those who are, like, happy are those who are sad. It's just an immediate, what are you talking about? Blessed are those who are mourned, for they shall be comforted. Well, the first thing to say about this is, um, while Christianity has a lot to say about mourning in general, I do think it starts more specifically. I think it's like an emotional counterpart to poor in spirit. It's a type of spiritual mourning. R.W. Glenn says, it means we mourn our poverty and our sin. We mourn the sin of the world. We mourn the sin others commit against us. And we mourn what sin has put Christ through on our path. At this point, you might feel a little like, all right, this is too much. There's life to live. It's sunny outside. It feels like spring for some reason right now. But I would like to say this. I think this is something we need to hear. There was uh, an article that's made the rounds last week talking about depression rates in high schoolers and middle schoolers. We need to hear what Jesus has for us. And Jesus offers to that, blessed are those who mourn because they will the comfort. Jesus arrives at the funeral of Lazarus. He weeps. Jesus looks over Jerusalem. He weeps. It's short, and so you can kind of go, yeah, he cries, move on. But weeps is like, I stopped and tears came, and it was a moment, and people observed, you know. It's a thing. (laughs) It's not just a word, and then we move on. When we follow Christ, we're invited to follow his heart as well as his mind. If you mourn your own sin, If you mourn the pain of an abused neighbor, if you look on a failed ministry or a troubled city and feel the tears, you are following Christ there. We mourn on the small scale, and we mourn on the big scale. I have some personal failures, I think, like many of you, that my mind draws up on occasion and holds me to. And usually when they come up, I think kind of, I mentally shout them away, I shut them down, or begin to think those big existential thoughts, man, I'm such a failure, you know, those labels. It's only real, recently uh, through a friend that I realized what I was doing is, I'm doing everything I can to avoid mourning over those things. And a friend suggested that maybe what I need is this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A friend suggested that when that moment comes, when those things rise up, our failures before us. He's like, if you're alone or, I guess, have no shame. Uh, truly mourn those things in the presence of Christ. Remember that failure. Feel the weight, but don't do it alone. Do it with Christ before you. And don't leave till you feel his forgiveness and care. If the thing is too heavy to do this alone, find a brother or sister or Christ who can be with you as you do. And we can only do that because of that second half. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a good question to ask yourself. What have you avoided mourning? I think we can usually find the place where you're most likely to get really angry, where we do the most self-medication. When you catch yourself like, why did I just eat that whole bag of chips for no reason? Um, Or maybe we just want to ignore it out of exhaustion. Where have you avoided mourning? And maybe we don't think there's any point to that because we don't believe there's comfort on the other side. And this is what is good about what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm with you through it, and I'm with you on the end. I think this morning is not just personal, but big picture as well. You guys have heard me talk a lot about, it's like a hobby horse of mine, my poor students, uh, meditating how much time you spend in the news and uh, reading that kind of stuff. And part of that. It's because I think if you spend too much time in those arenas, you begin to lose your correct emotional reaction. You know what I mean? Like, as you, look, as you hear the news, if you hear just one of those stories, you're supposed to cry, right? I mean, they're brutal, but boom, 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 and you start to feel like I, I don't, I'm numb inside to everything that's going on. Uh, if that's you, I would invite you to, to ask to slow down the inputs so you can mourn things correctly, you can pray over things the way they are meant to be prayed over. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the angry, or blessed are the indifferent, or blessed are the jokesters, which are always, I think, we can respond to that rush. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, and if I could say something hard here as well, I think it's good to pay attention to what types of stories you are, you skim over and don't want. I think the predominantly black church in America needs our attention, affection, and prayer, and our mourning. And if we just skim over it, we need to ask ourselves why we do that. We're called to have the heart of Christ for the world around us. Don't let politics obscure you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted and that they shall be comforted carries so much with it. Ultimately, it points to the cross where Christ defeats death and sin. But it's not just that. It's also the presence of Christ with us now through the Spirit. Do you mourn your sin? You shall be comforted. Jesus loves to forgive. He actually does. He's excited about it. It's what gets him up in the morning, if you could say it that way. It's why he comes. He loves to forgive sin. He sees people burdened by sin. He's like, ah. Wait, wait, I got, I got something for you. I know you've been suffering. I'm here to give you the good thing, which is forgiveness. His presence is proof of this one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and that's why I'm here standing in front of you. Do you mourn the misery and relationships around you? Jesus is the one who sits with the woman at the well, the outcast, and says, they shall be comforted. If you mourn the brokenness in the world around you, the victory on the cross promises its ultimate redemption. You can see here, too, why Jesus was so frustrated with the Pharisees. Because he looks out on this audience that's so well acquainted with grief. And the Pharisees are too busy trying to be superior to comfort them. When Judas comes to the the Sadducees at the end, confessing his sin, they say, see to it yourself. That's the best thing they have to offer him. Fix it yourself. How many funerals and hospital rooms were unvisited because the Pharisees didn't love the people in front of them and didn't actually mourn? And Jesus looks out over this crowd and sees people who have not been attended to. And he looks out and knows the fullness of it, feels the fullness of it, knows about those empty rooms. And he offers this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I will do that comfort. I've used this illustration before. It's kind of where I want to end. And I'll probably use it again, so you're going to get tired of hearing it. But it it has been like a a north star for me. Uh, A friend of mine um, was working in a church office, and she saw saw a woman who had just gone through a really tough situation come into the pastor's office. There was a meeting. She left. The pastor came out and was kind of in a haze a little bit, and just said, she's been through a really hard thing. And my friend said, how do you do this? How do you do this day in, day out? And he said, I weep. I think that's right. I weep. I mourn. And if he was doing that on his own power, he'd do it for one month and go home. (laughs) but he can do it because he has a promise of God. It's not sentimental. It's not Hallmark stuff. It's real comfort bought by Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. As we were driving over here, um we we're listening to Sandra McCracken's album Songs from the Valley. She's a great worship artist and after a particularly tough marital uh just struggles, she wrote this one song and in the chorus she says this. It's not okay So I know it's not the end. And what she means by that is I think she's pointing to Revelation 21. It's like, it's really hard right now. So I know we haven't reached the end of the story. Because I know how the story ends. I want to read it for you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God have passed away. The kids on the island actually did the right thing when they stumbled on the beach. They dropped their weapons and they cried. Christ looks at us in our war paint and our toy spears and offers us good news if we'll hear it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You came a long way to deliver that message, and that message has gone to the ends of the earth. Help us to hear it now. Father, there is so much of your affection and your love that we just shy away from because we don't feel like we're worthy of it, because we don't know where it will take us. We're afraid to give it attention. We believe deep down, we are suspicious that you don't actually give us your whole heart and everything in the scripture scream that you do. Father, you are good to us when no one else is. You are good to us when we are not good to ourselves. You call us to follow you and offer us yourself as a gift. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.